You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting, hoping to make fresh soil from which new life might spring. We're recording today on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God and for tens of thousands of years the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under Indigenous leadership that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. In this episode, we're talking intergenerational injustice. We're talking about the bushfire emergency in New South Wales and its context, the impacts of the climate strike a couple of months ago on the lives of young people who participated, and electric vehicles in Australia, and more. My conversation partner this episode is Adam Wood. Adam is a high school teacher at a large, well-known private school in Sydney, teaching legal and Christian studies. He's married to Emma and they have two small children. A little known fact is that Adam has actually already been on the good dirt. Adam very kindly was willing to participate in a pilot episode where we were still developing the idea and getting a sense of how it might work. And so he was a, uh, a willing and very helpful guinea pig. Welcome, Adam. It's so lovely to have you on the good dirt again. It's a pleasure to be here, Byron. How did you become a teacher? We're going to be talking this episode about uh, relationships between generations and particularly the kind of obligations that we have to young people and future generations. And you find yourself in a job where you spend most of your working life around teenagers. What drew you to that or how did you end up there? Well, I was working for a few years after university as a corporate lawyer and I found that I didn't feel like I had the right skills uh, long-term to be a successful lawyer. And I had a bit of a surprise interview with the principal of a boys' school here in Sydney. And I was explaining to him how formative school was for me, uh, academically and developmentally and spiritually. And I explained to him that I would love the opportunity to try high school teaching uh, for the access to the emotional and spiritual depth that that job can offer. And on a bit of a whim, he gave me a job offer and I, I snapped it up. And I've been at that school for six years now and I, I thoroughly enjoy most of hanging out with teenagers. I do love seeing them grow in their thinking and open their eyes more to the world. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. Wow. So from corporate law to high school teaching, which context is more cutthroat? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there are some teachers who would be terrified of going into law, but I'm sure there are many lawyers who could be brought to tears by my students quite easily. (laughs) So there are are traps, traps and pitfalls in both industries. Yeah, having, having spent a year myself as a high school teacher, I have nothing but respect for those who do that very important job. So it's great to have you. As always, we have three segments in The Good Dirt. The first is, what's the big idea? Where we take a concept from philosophy or theology, from history or sociology, but a concept that helps to illuminate and join the dots when we come to reading the news concept that can help to expose some of the, the structures that are sometimes semi-hidden behind the stories and help us understand what are the, the forces and the trends that are shaping the world in which we all live. Some of the previous concepts we've covered have been the idea of common grace with Scott Sanders, just world belief with Brooke Prentice. I talked with Lisa Sharon Harper about core spiritual lies. 
Uh, with Josh Downton, we talked about the epistemic priority of, on the oppressed. With Dr. Miriam Pepper, we uh, discussed the Murray-Darling River Basin, a whole episode on that topic. With Ben Thurley, I talked about the Overton window and how change happens in society. With the Reverend Dr. Jason John, we talked about identity protective cognition, a psychological mechanism that we all use to shape our uh, approach to new ideas. Uh, with Professor David Clough, who was over here from the UK, uh, talking about his new book, we looked at humans and other animals. In the last episode with Dr. Mick Pope, we talked about the Anthropocene. This episode, Adam, we're talking about intergenerational injustice. And to raise this topic, I actually want to read a bit out of one of my favourite books from my own childhood. Uh, this was a book that had a profound effect on me when I was, I think, probably 12 or 13, early high school. It's by one of my favourite authors at the time, Douglas Adams. I was just reading everything that he wrote, the Hitchhiker's Guide books, but also pretty much anything else that he, he wrote. And he had a little book that doesn't get as much attention as some of his others. It's called Last Chance to See. And he co-wrote it with Mark Carwardine, who's a, uh, an ecologist. And together they travelled the world looking for critically endangered species, species on the brink, species that were about to disappear, and this was the last chance to see them, possibly. And with his usual humour and insight and wit, uh, Douglas Adams uh, records his experiences, uh, at times hilarious, at times poignant, of seeking after these creatures. But he ends the book with a little parable. It goes for a couple of pages, and I'd like to read it. It's called Sifting Through the Embers. There's a story I heard when I was young which bothered me because I couldn't understand it. It was many years before I discovered it to be the story of the sibling books. By that time, all the details of the story had rewritten themselves in my mind, but the essentials were still the same. After a year of exploring some of the endangered environments of the world, I think I finally understand it. It concerns an ancient city. Doesn't matter where it was or what it was called. It was a thriving, prosperous city set in the middle of a large plain. One summer, while the people of the city were busy thriving and prospering away, a strange old beggar woman arrived at the gates carrying 12 large books, which she offered to sell to them. She said that the books contained all the knowledge and all the wisdom of the world and that she would let the city have all 12 of them in return for a single sack of gold. The people of the city thought this was a very funny idea. They said she obviously had no conception of the value of gold, and that probably the best thing was for her to go away again. This she agreed to do, but first she said she was going to destroy half of the books in front of them. She built a small bonfire, burnt six of the books, of all knowledge and all wisdom in the sight of the people of the city, and then went on her way. Winter came and went, a hard winter, but the city just about managed to flourish through it, and then the following summer, the old woman was back. Ah, you again, said the people of the city. How's the knowledge and wisdom going? Six books, she said. Just six left. Half of all the knowledge and wisdom in the world. Once again, I'm offering to sell them to you. Oh yes, sniggered the people of the city. Only the price has changed. Not surprised. Two sacks of gold. What? Two sacks of gold for the remaining six books of knowledge and wisdom. Take it or leave it. It seems to us, said the people of the city, that you can't be very wise or knowledgeable yourself, for you would realise that you can't just go around quadrupling an already outrageous price in a buyer's market. If that's the sort of knowledge and wisdom you're peddling, then, frankly, you can keep it at any price. Do you want them or not? No. Very well, I will trouble you for a little firewood. She built another bonfire and burnt three of the remaining books in front of them, then set back off across the plain. That night, one or two curious people from the city sneaked out and sifted through the embers to see if they could salvage the odd page or two, but 
The fire had burned very thoroughly and the old woman had raked the ashes. There was nothing. Another hard winter took its toll on the city and they had a little trouble with famine and disease, but trade was good and they were in reasonably good shape again by the following summer when once again the old woman appeared. You're early this year, they said to her. Less to carry, she explained, showing them the three books she was still carrying. A quarter of all the knowledge and wisdom in the world. Do you want it? What's the price? Four sacks of gold. You're completely mad, old woman. Apart from anything else, our economy's going through a bit of a sticky patch at the moment. Sacks of gold are completely out of the question. Firewood, please. Now, wait a minute, said the people of the city. This isn't doing anybody any good. We've been thinking about all this, and we've put together a little committee to have a look at these books of yours. Let us evaluate them for a few months. See if they're worth anything to us. And when you come back next year, perhaps we can put in some kind of a reasonable offer. We're not talking sacks of gold here, though. The old woman shook her head. No, she said, bring me the firewood. It'll cost you. No matter, said the woman with a shrug. The books will burn quite well by themselves. So saying, she set about shredding two of the books into pieces, which then burned easily. She set off swiftly across the plain and left the people of the city to face another year. She was back in the late spring. Just the one left, she said, putting it down on the ground in front of her. So I was able to bring my own firewood. How much? said the people of the city. Sixteen sacks of gold. We'd only budgeted for eight. Take it or leave it. Wait here. The people of the city went off into a huddle and returned half an hour later. Sixteen sacks is all we've got left, they pleaded. Times are hard. You must leave us with something. The old woman just hummed to herself as she started to pile the kindling together. All right, they cried at last, opening up the gates of the city and let out two ox carts, each laden with eight sacks of gold. But it had better be good. Thank you, said the old woman. It is. And you should have seen the rest of it. She led the two ox carts away across the plain with her and left the people of the city to survive as best they could with the one remaining twelfth of all the knowledge and wisdom that had been in the world. Hmm. So that little parable, I think, neatly illustrates some of the dynamics of intergenerational injustice associated particularly with climate disruption and ecological degradation. If you think of each of the years of that story almost as a, a new generation, each generation has less to preserve than the previous one, but the price of doing so becomes steeper and steeper. And it's tempting for each generation to put off paying that cost to, to keep on enjoying their sacks of gold in the short term and leave the losses to their children. Mm. And uh, in effect, that's what we're collectively doing uh, with uh, climate change and a number of other ecological issues. Because until you've wrestled with the relentless physics and chemistry of climate change, you might not appreciate just how unavoidably it's an intergenerational injustice of the first order. We are stealing the future from those yet to come. The worst impacts of a warming world won't arrive until after you are dead. And that's true for everyone alive today. It's true for 80-year-olds. It's true for me. It's true for 8-year-olds. Because it's a problem by its nature that is far easier to make worse than it is to improve. You can, you can slow down the rate that it gets worse, but it, it, it takes a lot more work, more sacks of gold, if you like, both literally and metaphorically, uh, to try and improve the matter. What a lot of people don't understand is that getting emissions under control is one thing. I mean, 
that itself is a big task and globally they've continued to rise almost year on year. There hasn't been a significant sustained fall globally since the Industrial Revolution. And getting them under control doesn't just mean stopping that rise, uh, pausing our emissions at a, at a given level. It means reversing it, lowering our emissions until they reach net zero. And depending how long we leave it, even that may be insufficient to stabilise atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases because the warmer it gets, the more likely we'll see worsening natural emissions as forests burn and wetlands dry and permafrost thaws and rots. But even if we manage to stabilise atmospheric concentrations, temperatures will continue to rise for decades because of the thermal lag of the oceans, that the oceans soak up heat and then only gradually release it. And so even, even once we've stabilised atmospheric concentrations, the temperature will keep rising for some decades. And even once temperatures have stabilised, sea levels will continue to rise for centuries as the ice sheets continue to absorb that extra heat and melt. And so the possibility of stable coastlines has, has probably already been stolen from our children and from their children and from as many future generations as we can reasonably imagine. Until we really get this, until we feel it in our bones, until we tap into the deep well of helplessness and anger that the knowledge of these realities stirs amongst those young enough to legitimately feel that they've contributed nothing to their plight, but old enough to begin to understand that plight, until we really f feel that helplessness and anger, then we kind of begin to imagine the intergenerational rage that is building. There's a justice to that rage. There's a rightness to it, because this is a crime being committed by one generation against another on a scale previously impossible to imagine. And so, Adam, I'm interested in your reflections and experiences on where you may have seen vignettes of this reality in your time with young people. Yeah, well, I've been talking about climate change with high school boys for the last six years, and I've seen a change in their attitude just in the last six years. Mm. It scares me that at the moment that change can happen on just a year by year level that can have a decade by decade or century by century or millennium by millennium effect later on. Yeah, this is something we actually I was talking about with Nick Pope, how the Anthropocene is like an acceleration of the, the kinds of geological changes that we're used to seeing in the geological record that play out over thousands of years. When they play out over just mere years or decades, people think, oh, we've seen these kinds of changes before in, you know, as we look back, but, but actually it's the pace that's just radically mm. different. Mm. And that's the novelty of the Anthropocene. Mm. One thing that I've noticed is that high school students are very perceptive and they don't just listen to what their teachers and parents say, but they also pick up emissions and emphases and body language and that they learn a lot more from us than we are necessarily teaching explicitly. Say five years ago, when I started passionately trying to raise awareness and concern about climate change amongst my students, it seemed clear that they were contrasting my panic with their other teachers and parents' lack of panic. And that lack of panic, even if those other teachers and parents said, I'm concerned about global warming or global warming is a problem, their lack of panic clearly suggested that it can't be that bad. And so I was seen as 
an alarmist. And that was funny for some students. But in the last couple of years, the jokes have really died down and the fear and the anger and the angst seems to have accelerated quite rapidly. Uh, And I've got a few theories about where that has come from. My main theory is that it's come from social media. Enough of their peers are panicking around the world that there's a credibility to the other panickers, for lack of a better label. And so that laughter has stopped but a, a, and it's been replaced by an anger. But that anger or that activism still has a juvenile quality to it. Hmm. So, for example, they might seriously suggest killing 5 billion people as a way of bringing global overconsumption under control. And when Nothing I, different from what Marvel suggested, say. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're serious. Yeah. And they don't fully understand the ramifications of what they're saying because they're teenagers. This is why we don't tend to elect teenagers to be uh, members of parliament, even though I'd be keen for their vote from the age of 16, by the by. And that does worry me because the laughter might have died down and it might be replaced with an appropriate level of fear and concern, but until their whole world their community, all of their teachers, indeed the curriculum, uh, and uh, until us adults get our arguments under control, they are not going to know what to think about this topic. Mm. But they have more to lose, Mm. and they have more to fear, and they are sensing from us older people a, oh, stuff it, if we can't sort this out, well then we'll just have to consume what we can until we die. They're sensing an apathy in us or a resignation that scares them even more. Mm. Oh, that's right. I mean, I think that's an excellent illustration. It's a form of denial, actually, to soak yourself so deeply in despair that you say, nothing I do will matter, because that is a betrayal of future generations. And precisely that future generation that is watching us and looking for leadership. Because Mm. I think what I'm hearing you say is that you're noticing young people have really picked up on the urgency and the emotional weight of our present predicament, but are looking around for leadership and not seeing it. The kind of leadership that can help to guide and shape and make sense of our present moment and help us to know what, what are we meant to do at this point. And in the absence of that leadership, then there's the temptation to engage in the kind of simplistic black and white uh, you know, genocidal fantasy that you, you're mentioning. And rather than jumping on them for engaging in that fantasy, what what's really needed is the leadership mm. um, from the adults in the room mm. to grow up and start leading. Mm. On this topic, we're not going to spend too long talking about mental health uh, in this particular episode. Uh, obviously, there's, there's another whole conversation here about the mental health of young people and more broadly, the interconnections between climate disruption and the anxieties and, and depression that uh, many people feel in, in light of that. But just one small story that springs to mind is actually some studies of uh, the UK during the period of the Blitz in the Second World War that mental disorders apparently almost entirely disappeared from the UK during that short period of the war. And it, it was one of the darkest moments in, in the history of the UK, but 
there was leadership mm. and they knew what they were meant to be doing and there was a clear sense of purpose and pulling together and it actually meant that the anxieties and fears didn't destroy people's mental health they were better able to cope in the context of a society that was pulling together on a an urgent existential crisis i can't imagine what it would be like for everyone in society mm. to share an urgent goal and to feel like every small contribution that they make matters mm. it, and it is so sad that it took being bombed yeah. to bring that out of them yeah the threat of invasion and a common enemy but it's also the case that for many of the people who lived through the Blitz, when they were asked decades later to reflect on the moments they felt most alive, most of them looked back to that period mm. and said, that, that was when I was most alive. Mm. When everything was at stake, but I was working together with comrades and friends and neighbours mm. on something that really mattered. Mm. And I think that's actually a hopeful story, mm. that in the presence of genuine leadership, much can be accomplished. And things can be accomplished far faster than we think. But we're probably jumping ahead at this point. Let's have a little interlude. We're talking serious matters here. But I want to hear about something a little less serious. Tell me a funny school story. Something that's uh, happened to you recently in your interactions with young people. Well, high school students, as I said before, are remarkably perceptive in relation to their teachers. They are actually experts at one thing. And that is reading teacher body language because that's their main hobby when they're bored and they're not interested (laughs) in the lesson staring at the teacher and matching the teacher's body language with the words coming out of their mouth my students can tell when i'm angry or upset or unsure of myself even when i'm trying to hide it and my older students sometimes don't hesitate to share their insights about me with me One year 12 boy, for example, makes regular comments under his breath like this. You handled that situation well, sir. You really put him back in his box then, sir. You're having an average day, sir. Or more sarcastically, you're really inspiring us to work harder than we would if you weren't here. (laughs) It's quite a burn. And it's it's a reminder to me that teachers should not lie to their students because when it comes to us in front of them they are practicing their lie detection skills and there's often 20 of them and only one of you and the the main thing that students hate more than anything else is unfairness they have to endure boredom they have to endure learning about things they're not necessarily interested in or being somewhere or wearing something that they didn't necessarily ask but if if it is seen as being fair, it's tolerable. And as soon as the situation becomes unfair, then it becomes intolerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and teachers lying to them is, is part of the, uh, the unfairness. They're very sensitive to it. Very finely tuned BS detector. Yes, yes. And so sometimes they use those powers uh, for their own amusement uh, at, at our expense. Taking a leaf from their book, we're going to try and apply our BS detectors to some of the stories in the news. How's that for a segue? Our second segment is What's Going On, where we dig into a few specific news stories, stories that may not have been on the front page, or if they were, maybe were missing some crucial context, but which relate to bigger than just the present moment, bigger than just this day, bigger than just celebrity gossip or scandal or the latest outrage, but somehow speak to the trends and forces that are shaping our lives in the world today. Our first story 
is New South Wales laws proposed to prevent Scope 3 being considered in mining approvals. This is a story from the 23rd of October from the National Resources Review, a news website by and for the resources sector in Australia, the mining industry, just to show that you're on the good dirt. We look at a wide variety of news sources. But this story sounds technical and involves some technical details, but the long and the short of it is the government is currently planning to legislate in such a way as to make it easier for new coal mines to get approved. I discussed with Josh Doughton back in episode five, something novel had happened in New South Wales, which was that a court had rejected a proposed coal mine by taking into consideration the emissions from the coal when it's burnt overseas. Now this seems like an obvious thing that ought to be taken into account when you're opening up a new coal mine. One of the environmental effects is that that coal is gonna get burnt. But actually, it had been the norm for that not to be taken into consideration. For many years, that hadn't been the case. The only environmental considerations were the direct emissions from the operation of the coal mine itself and the the mining company, not the product that it was digging up from the ground. The court accepted the argument that the emissions from the coal itself ought to be included, and as a result, knocked back the project. This sent shockwaves through the coal mining industry in New South Wales, who very quickly mobilised their lobbying forces and persuaded their allies, is the polite way of putting it, in the coalition government in New South Wales to pass legislation to prevent courts and the government's own planning commission from paying attention to the emissions of the fossil fuels being dug up by the mining industry. And so this is a reassertion of the status quo against the court and an independent planning commission that dared to take the big picture of climate into account. And so there's a reason that environmental groups were up in arms about this new legislation. It thwarts the operations of an independent body and of the courts who had reached a conclusion on the basis of, I think, very good and sound moral arguments about Australia has a responsibility for the emissions that we dig up. We can't just pass on the full moral responsibility to whoever buys it from us. Now, there's a complex discussion to be had about the allocation of responsibility for different emissions, and I don't want to dive into that now, but suffice to say, legislation is currently before the New South Wales Parliament to make it easier to open coal mines. This is happening in the same week, and indeed even on the same day, as a state of emergency being declared in New South Wales over bushfires bushfires that are themselves occurring in a level of fire danger that is unprecedented and taking forms and moving and behaving in ways that firefighters also label as unprecedented. And scientific studies draw a connection between this unprecedented fire behaviour and the warming world that results from burning so much coal. There's a deep irony here that on the very week, the very day that a state of emergency has been called with a hundred, over a hundred bushfires burning in New South Wales and, and many more in Queensland with recently 150 plus houses lost and multiple lives lost just in the last few days from these fires. And today on Tuesday, the 12th of November, for the very first time, a fire danger rating of catastrophic has been applied in the Greater Sydney region and the Hunter and Illawarra regions. The irony of these two things happening on the same day is so stunning that if you were writing a novel and you put these two things together in this way, any half-decent editor would call you up and say, no, that's way too blatant and forced. It really is quite stunning. I was at a rally this morning 
That was both calling for better funding for the rural fire service, the RFS, but also specifically calling for the repeal uh, of this proposed legislation. Mm. And as, as we were protesting, my voice was hoarse, not from just calling out, but, but from the smoke that I was breathing in from the fires. Mm. And I was pausing sometimes to check my phone as I was getting updates from friends on the far north, north coast who were evacuating. And the synchronicity of events just really brings home the failure of our system to join the dots. Mm. Yeah, the the irony is painful and I'm racking my brains to think how we're going to get change or reform in this area. And it, it's in that context that I beg to my fellow Australians who consider this drug dealer's defence in, in relation to the coal that we dig up and then send overseas. It's understandable that the coal mining industry would want to protect its profits in any way it can, but that doesn't mean we as Australians need to let this one industry amongst many make decisions about our laws. So let's just be practical here or even even selfish. The reason why we might even consider this is because we're selfishly considering Australia's own interests. But we're only having this conversation because of globalization and because of the ability to sell so much coal on the on the global market. So there's enormous benefits to globalization. But this coal threatens that globalization. If we harm our global neighbors and increase the probability of world war, then we're not going to be having this discussion because there'll be world war. So it, it is in Australia's economic interests that we promote a safe climate as, as much as possible. So this, this coal hurts us. It hurts us economically, politically, as well as ecologically. It's an absolute disaster. And if we, the Australian voters, can wake up to the only people who need to feel pain here are these mining companies, and that the mining companies themselves don't have a body to be kicked or a soul to be damned. So, uh, it, it they, they do have workers. They have and, workers. And the workers deserve just transition. Yes, but we've transitioned industries previously, uh, and it's part of the government's responsibility to foresee that need and develop policy accordingly. Um, and it's actually part of the abdication of the government's responsibilities that they are sleepwalking into the collapse of our coal industry without plans for those workers. And so for those, those workers who feel that they have to keep on voting for their own jobs are not being given an option. Uh, and so there's one, part of the injustice is to them. To, to the 10 to 20,000 of them, Yes, it would be very easy in our national budget to retrain and relocate and give them a just transition. Yes. There's fewer of them than, than most realise. That's right. Because the vast majority of the profits from our mining industry end up in the pockets of a very small number of people. And so it really is the case that the coal industry, this is a phrase I use sometimes, the coal industry is a way of extracting wealth from the lungs of particularly Indian and Chinese uh, poor people and from the, the colour of the Great Barrier Reef and from the stability of our coastlines, extracting that wealth and putting it in the pockets of a couple of mining magnates, losing value along the way. It mm. actually causes more economic harm than economic benefit that it generates. It, it's, that fact is just hidden from us because coal companies don't have to deal with their own waste. Either the particulate pollution that harms human health in myriad ways, as we've discussed on previous episodes, or the climate disruption from mm. the carbon content of the coal. Mm. 
I've already foreshadowed our next story, which has to do with the bushfires and the state of emergency. And before I mention the news article, I want to give a little bit of background to remind people of where, where some of these terms have come from. In 2009, Australia's deadliest ever bushfires killed 173 people and injured another 414, while also destroying over 2,000 homes and 3,500 buildings in Victoria. As a result of these Black Saturday bushfires, fire regulations were revised all around the country, and a new category was added to the iconic bushfire danger index, coming in above the extreme category, namely catastrophic, or in Victoria, code red. And under such conditions, in the event of a wildfire, evacuation is now considered the only viable option. Staying in order to fight the fire, and perhaps save one's house, is considered very likely fatal. And today, for the first time since 2009, when that new category was introduced, the Greater Sydney region, population 5.2 million, experienced catastrophic fire conditions. Uh, these are also shared by the Hunter region to the north and the uh, Shoalhaven-Illawarra region to the south on the coast. But with the maximum temperatures in the high 30s and sustained winds of up to 50 kilometres per hour, very low humidity, all on top of record drought conditions across the vast majority of the state. Already back last Friday, New South Wales had over 100 fires burning and we set a new record for the most fires that had reached the highest emergency warning level. Uh, there were 17 simultaneously across the state and two more in Queensland. And on last Friday, there were three confirmed deaths and at least 150 houses lost. And so in that context, we come to our second story, which is this is not normal. What's different about the New South Wales megafires? This is written by Greg Mullins, who is the former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner, and he's a councillor on the Climate Council, written this last weekend. And I'm going to read a long section of it. Unprecedented is a word that we're hearing a lot from fire chiefs, politicians and the Weather Bureau. I've just returned from California where I spoke to fire chiefs still battling unseasonal fires. The same word, unprecedented, came up. Unprecedented dryness, reductions in long-term rainfall, low humidity, high temperatures, wind velocities, fire danger indices, fire spread and ferocity, instances of pyroconvective fires, that is firestorms that make their own weather early starts and late finishes to bushfire seasons, an established long-term trend driven by a warming, drying climate. The numbers don't lie and the science is clear. If anyone tells you this is part of a normal cycle or we've had fires like this before, smile politely and walk away because they don't know what they're talking about. In New South Wales, our worst fire years were almost always during an El Nino event and major property losses generally occurred from late November to February. Based on more than a century of weather observations, our official fire danger season is legislated from the 1st of October to the 31st of March. During the 2000s, though, major fires have regularly started in August and September, and sometimes go through to April. The October 2013 fires that destroyed more than 200 homes were the earliest large loss fires in New South Wales history. Again, not during an El Nino. This year, 2019, by the beginning of November, we had already lost about as many homes as during the disastrous 2001-02 bushfire season. We've now eclipsed 1994 fire losses. Fires are burning in places and at intensities never before experienced. Rainforest in northern New South Wales, tropical Queensland, and the formerly wet old-growth forests in Tasmania. On Friday, the New South Wales Rural Fire Service sent out an alert that fires were creating thunderstorms, pyroconvective events, 
In my 47 years of fighting fires, I don't remember this happening much. Now it happens quite regularly. On Friday, the atmosphere was relatively stable and therefore shouldn't have been conducive to these wildly unpredictable and dangerous events. Yet it happened. Unprecedented. The drought we are facing is more intense than the millennium drought, with higher levels of evaporation due to higher temperatures. This has dried out the bush and made it easier for fires to start, easier for them to spread quickly, and as we saw on Friday, enabling spot fires to start twice as far ahead of the main fires as we would normally expect. Warmer, drier conditions with higher fire danger are preventing agencies from conducting as much hazard reduction burning. It's often either too wet or too dry and windy to burn safely. Blaming greenies for stopping these important measures is a familiar, populist, but basically untrue claim. Together with 22 other retired fire and emergency service chiefs, I spoke out earlier this year. We felt we had a duty to tell people how climate change is supercharging our natural disaster risks. I wish we were wrong, but we're not. It is frankly terrifying. And I can't see people waking up to that making it much better. Maybe there would be a bit of a battle of the blitz improvement in my climate anxiety if we acknowledged this. But the, the trajectory is terrifying. I feel it is, it is right to say how scary this is. The imagination runs wild. How can it possibly get worse than this? And yet it can. I don't have much faith in the moral and spiritual uh, resilience of my fellow Australians or frankly myself to deal with this system breaking. So it is, it is scary. If the climate scientists tell me that there's still hope to make this significantly less bad, then please, can we make it less bad as soon as possible? And yet, in the face of that urgent reality being highlighted by 11,000 scientists, uh, as we discussed with Mick Pope in last episode, and being highlighted by 23 former fire chiefs, mentioned just then by uh, Greg Mullins, who wrote multiple times to the government requesting an urgent meeting with the Prime Minister and senior ministers to discuss Australia's unpreparedness to face increasing climate disruption and the intersection with more intense bushfires. In the face of the government's head-in-the-sand approach, it's, it's hard to see what the most useful next steps to take are. It's not just the government. The government represents the interests of a particular class of people, those whose profits and power and sense of self are bound up with not just the extraction of fossil fuels, but in general, high energy, high consumption society. So what's needed is not just political change of getting rid of one party and bringing in another party. You actually need to change that system. You need to shift the cultural values of what's important and what's considered normal and appropriate. We need to keep nurturing and sharing and building pro-social values Mm. and values that look to the long-term future, Mm. not just immediate short-term profit. Mm. We need to cherish our children Mm. and the idea of their children and so on. Mm. We need to look beyond the next election or the next quarterly business report 
or the next fluctuation of the stock market and even look beyond the appreciation of the house we may have just bought Mm. um, or the progression of our career unfolding over a few decades. Mm. We need to have a longer horizon of meaning and intention than just that. We need what sometimes gets called cathedral thinking, where the great cathedrals in medieval Europe weren't built in a day, they weren't even built in a year or often even in a single human lifetime. These were projects that were carried on over centuries with each generation adding to a building that symbolised something greater than the sum of the parts, something greater than any one individual. Mm. Ultimately, it was a reflection of their worship of the creator, but it was also a symbol of a society that was capable of imagining something beyond the present. Mm. We need an expansion of our imagination. You mentioned the creator and thinking about ourselves as creatures, first and foremost. The, The image that comes into my mind is... We're creatures that need food. And wouldn't it be such a beautiful thing to fall in love with sustainability and to view uh, our system as something that can be beautifully and intergenerationally sustainable? Uh, I was greatly heartened by Naomi's, Naomi Klein's teaching in This Changes Everything that the, the necessary reduction in the average Westerner's consumption levels would take us back to approximately the consumption levels that existed in the 1960s. Not the consumption levels that existed 10,000 years ago in the caves. That sustainability can still involve prosperity in a newly conceived sense. And that's something that is exciting. Yeah, I think she, she makes the, the quip, doesn't she, that we don't need to go back to the Stone Age, just to the Age of the Stones, <laughs> as in the Rolling Stones. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Come on. Come on, boomers. Get excited about that. (laughs) Our next story, Adam, I think you're going to introduce. Yes, our next story comes from a couple of weeks ago in the Sydney Morning Herald. The title of the article is Australians worry about the environment but are wary of electric cars. Now, in this article, Rob Harris, he opens by saying Australians are confused and wary of the range and costs of electric vehicles, a new study found, despite their rapid increase in concerns about pollution levels and the environment. So basically, this article drove me a little bit crazy. And so that, that's why I've brought it in here, because it's been a bit of a, a hobby of mine to research the development of electric cars, particularly over the last eight years. And it's really frustrating to see the same misconceptions pop up over and over again, particularly in Australia, misconceptions that are basically dead in places like the UK. And this this article goes on to say Australians are worried about the range of electric cars, uh, the costs, and, and whether they are actually better for the environment. If you get out of the Australian context and you go and see what people are talking about in electric, with electric cars in, say, Britain or, or England, there's a much clearer discussion that we could bring to Australia for, for our great benefit. The basic thing about electric cars is they don't fit our ideal picture of sustainable transport. So the ideal for sustainability is that we electrify everything. We electrify all industrial processes and transport. And ideally, looking at the metals and the lithium and the, and the other rare earth metals in the world, 
we probably can't create fair and effective transport systems for the world's population unless we focus on electric trains and trams and buses and bikes and ditch the car as an inefficient use of resources. And along with that, that'll require a revolution in town planning. In, and, uh, you know, new urbanist principles. And I mean, there's probably a whole episode, future episode here just on transport and urban planning. But, but go yes. on, you're making a point about cars. Yes, point. yes. So the car is problematic. And the most iconic electric car, the Tesla, uh, epitomizes that because Teslas use a lot of metal and have a huge battery capacity and are really expensive. And certainly not everyone in the world can afford a Tesla. But there are more electric cars out there than just Tesla, even though Teslas are the best. And putting aside that qualification that sustainability long-term doesn't involve the car, and just looking at a Sydney context, clearly Sydney is designed for people to need cars. And so this question of, do I want to get an electric car, is going to be a live question for a lot of people. And the basic answer that I want to give to those people who are thinking about that is electric cars are definitely better than petrol cars, particularly if you're interested in buying a new car. If you're interested in uh, reducing your overall carbon footprint, then there is an argument to buying a secondhand petrol car because it's already manufactured and it's already over here. But comparing a petrol car and electric car, the electric cars are better. They are, for one thing, they're faster, uh, but that's, that's a bit of a RevHeads um, uh, attribute. They're safer, they're cheaper to run, and they're cleaner. And they're definitely cleaner even if they're recharged with coal, even though a lot of electric car drivers recharge their electric cars with their solar panels. But the oil industry is so dirty and when you extract a litre of oil out of the ground, you have to burn a lot of oil just to transport that oil, and then you have to burn coal to power the refinery to turn it into petrol, and then you need to burn diesel to get that litre of petrol to the Bowser, and then you put the petrol in your petrol car and lose most of it to heat anyway. That's just, that's madness compared with recharging uh, an electric car at home using a PowerPoint. So my wife and I have just bought a medium range uh, electric car secondhand from Japan. It's the 30 kilowatt hour 2016 Nissan Leaf for $28,000. And it will slowly pay for itself. But the reason why we got it wasn't actually economic. It was prophetic. Nissan is not a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. We want to show people how great these cars are. And then when it comes to range, the range of our Toyota Camry, if we filled it with petrol and drove until the petrol tank was empty, we'd probably get to Coffs Harbour, at least Port Macquarie. Uh, we're talking at least 400 kilometres of range if we drove for six to eight hours straight. And we never do that. The range of the Nissan Leaf is 170 kilometres, which sounds really low. But what I'd ask someone to do if they're considering this is go onto Google Maps and Google the distance of a typical drive. And they'll find that even a long drive that they only do every month or so is probably only 100 kilometers round trip to get home. So they're more viable than what most Australians think. And I hope that we can get somewhat excited about them. 
Why is it Australia hasn't overcome these misconceptions? Why is it that, say, in Norway, 58% of all new cars are EVs? And in Australia, it's, am I right, it's not even 1% yet? Yeah, yeah. In Norway, there is a significant tax incentive. It's the equivalent of 7,000 euros, something like that, uh, off your income tax. If so effectively, you, it's a government subsidy. A government subsidy. For, and, and there's free parking and, and other perks. A further government subsidy. Yeah, yeah. Not that our governments don't already subsidise all cars in a wide variety of ways. Indeed. Through investments in road infrastructure and dedicating so much of our cities to parking. In all kinds of ways, the government is subsidising car users over against other forms of transport. Mm. And that, that relates back to the conversation we were having about the relative desirability of cars, personalised motor vehicles versus more systemic solutions to transport issues. Mm. I think there are... Th- Three reasons, but this is this would be this would be grounds for further research. Maybe Aussies aren't as sensitive to car pollution given our relatively low population density, but that's a bit strange given that most of us live in relatively dense urban areas and presumably would be as sensitive as Europeans to. Yeah, we have higher levels of urbanisation than the UK or Norway, yeah, for instance. Yeah. I think it comes down to range anxiety and the, the lack of rapid charging infrastructure for our very occasional long trips, no government incentives, and a, f- a fourth one, we have a close relationship with Holden, Ford, and Toyota because some of the manufacturing has occurred here in Australia up until recently, which makes our relationship to traditional cars uh, a bit more conservative than, say, our New Zealand friends who... Uh, have been embracing EVs faster because they have less of a romantic view about burning petrol. They import all of their cars from overseas. And so they've probably been able to see this issue more clearly than us. Hopefully with the end of all car manufacturing activities here in Australia as of recently, and we've become a pure car importing nation, hopefully we can, and, and with the slow rollout of Uh, charging infrastructure the tesla charging network is actually pretty great here in australia but it only applies to teslas there is a slow rollout for the non-tesla electric cars like the nissan leaf and hopefully car by car there'll be a shift in the imagination of the car that's really helpful that picture i think it's always worth adding when we're talking about different cultural attitudes towards our climate obligations and opportunities that the single factor to me to my uh, reading the single factor that explains more than any other national differences in attitudes towards climate politics is the size of fossil fuel reserves owned by that country so that all the most obstructive recalcitrant nations all those who act as spoilers in international negotiations all those that are most dragging their feet other nations that have the highest fossil fuel reserves. You know, we're talking the US and China and Russia and Saudi Arabia and Australia mm. and Canada and Qatar and others, but, but all uh, fossil fuel intensive countries. That is those with the most to lose. Mm. And particularly those where it's important that the population support that activity mm. so that you need to propagandize the population Uh, inoculating them against the danger that they might start to enact same climate policies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Australia has been subject to more climate propaganda than New Zealand, Mm. for instance. Mm. Um, If you look at our media over many years, it has been dominated 
by sources that have been willing to push climate misinformation. And as a result, our population has a lower level of understanding and a worse grasp on just what it is that's happening with regards to climate disruption. Once I explain this to you, uh, you might not be able to unsee it, but I can give you one visual proof of that that drives me crazy. There is the main downside to getting a an electric car is the range. It's really expensive to get a high range electric car. Tesla's a high range. So the only disadvantage to a Tesla is the upfront cost. Apart from the upfront cost, they are faster, safer, cheaper overall, cleaner, comprehensively better and cooler, might I add. But a good Tesla is about $150,000. There are other kinds of propaganda at work here. Uh, 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 no, I'm getting to my point. I'm getting to my point. I'm not... You know, I, my point is, <laughs> if you see a car out there that costs more than a Tesla, if you see a, a Porsche SUV or a Maserati SUV or some of the Mercedes or BMW SUVs, not all of them, but the, the Maserati SUV for me, it, that, that $200,000 SUV is comprehensively inferior to a Tesla Model X. There is no good reason to buy that. And so it must be that pure brand loyalty or the propaganda. And to me, that's that's terribly sad and scary that you'd waste so much money on an inferior product. A little vignette of what they're doing collectively, wasting our resources on the inferior product of fossil fuels mm, generally, mm, mm. when cleaner, increasingly cheaper energy is available and yet we keep on doubling down on a 19th century energy source, which has actually been more expensive for a very long time. That fact has just been hidden from us, as we spoke about before, through the hidden subsidies of public health not being included, um, or climate disruption, the cost of climate disruption not being included in the price of coal. That is, it doesn't have to deal with the cost of its own waste. And so uh, electric vehicles and attitudes towards them are a little microcosm of our false consciousness. So you're telling me that we can have a comprehensively better world, but we just need to change our minds. No, we just need to dismantle the systems, <laughs> right. the power right. relationships, the, oh, just the culture, the, the economic structures that perpetuate and reproduce the narratives that are killing us. That's a more daunting... We need daunting, better stories to Yes, more, better stories, yeah. And, and shifting stories isn't just a matter of changing your mind, though it involves that too. Mm. An interlude. I'd like to give you a piece of my mind. This is actually an interlude that Adam first suggested to me back on the pilot. This idea of asking if you could say one sentence to one person in the world, what would it be? I actually asked Adam this back on the pilot. I wonder if he remembers what his answer was. But I want not that answer repeated. I want your answer today. If you could say one sentence to one person in the world, confident that they would hear you, who would it be and what would you say? I think I would say to my brother, Scott Morrison, please consider the well-being of the vulnerable and the poor and please use your leadership qualities for the true commonwealth and common good of Australia. And please listen to the other side with whom you're never going to fully agree, but maybe the other side on partisan politics is right on something. And if they are, the sooner you seize that, 
the better it will be, not only for us, but also for you. Mm. I'm struck, actually, as I've, as I've done that little uh, exercise with quite a number of people, I haven't counted along the way, but a number of people have had words for our Prime Minister. And it strikes me that there's a belief behind choosing him in the possibility of repentance, that it is possible for him to change his mind, that it's possible for him to be persuaded. And this is a, a core Christian assumption that at the core of all our other freedoms is the freedom to change our mind, the freedom to turn around, the freedom to, in Christian terms, repent. And I think that's important to hold on to, the possibility that other people can change. Though I do also think, just as if I had a friend who was an alcoholic and I was holding on to the possibility that they may be able to uh, never completely eradicate that addiction but learn to live sober, I'm not sure that trying to persuade them of that while they were still at the pub would be the way to do it. Mm. In a similar way, while I do hold open the possibility of a miraculous conversion or repentance for political leaders while they're in office, the chances of them actually changing their mind about something profound when they've built their entire career on the opposite is, is so small that it's almost like expecting the alcoholic to have the willpower to resist buying a drink while they live at a pub. And so while I do pray for our leaders to change their mind, sometimes I pray that they would have the ability to do that by being removed from office, mm. just as I might pray that my alcoholic friend leaves the pub in order to be able to see clearly. So sometimes I think for the possibility of particular individuals who have spent their careers heading in a particular direction, it often requires a change of context. To be honest, if you asked me to predict, I would predict, I predict that Scott Morrison will not pre will not repent and he will not change his mind. That's my sad prediction. It's part of the reason why I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. If you offered, if you offered me one hour with today's prime minister or one hour with the fifteen-year-old future prime minister, I would definitely ask for one hour with the fifteen-year-old. It's what I think about when I'm teaching. I don't hold much hope or enthusiasm for my students if they are to become an alcoholic. I want to talk about alcohol with them in a frank way now mm. and plant seeds in their mind now. Mm. In the same way, I do often think about the not insignificant possibility that at, at a wealthy private boys' school in Sydney, I might be talking to a future politician mm. now and the opportunity to talk to them now as a teenager is particularly exciting for me before they go too far down that path. Hmm. Our next story is a bit of a fun one, but it, it touches on some of the themes we've been talking about and actually links to very serious matters. The story is Climate Strike Named Official Word of the Year. This is a story from The Independent, the UK newspaper, on the 8th of November 2019. And it begins like this. Climate strike, the phrase, has been crowned Collins Dictionary Word of 2019. The phrase refers to a form of protest made famous by Swedish environmentalist Greta Thunberg, whose hashtag Fridays for Future movement prompted thousands of schoolchildren around the world to go on strike protesting the lack of action to combat climate change. The article says thousands of children. In fact, in September this year, it was something like 7.6 million people all around the world who took to the streets in the last couple of weeks of September. In Australia, that was particularly on the 20th of September, that Friday, 
Uh, and in Australia, something like 300 to 350,000 people participated in that climate strike, taking the day off school or work in order to make three demands of our federal government that we transition to 100% clean energy by 2030, that we have no new fossil fuel infrastructure, in particular to reject the Adani proposed mega coal mine, and third, a just transition for workers uh, out of the fossil fuel industry, as we discussed earlier. And so hundreds of thousands of people in Sydney, 80,000 people joined that strike, many of them young people, but people from all walks of life. It was actually a general strike, not just a school strike, as that movement that Greta inspired and is the uh, moral leader of is seeking to expand beyond just school students. And yet it remains led by school students. This is a, a movement by and for those who we've been talking about in this episode, the next generation who are already having to wear some of the costs of our inaction. Uh, and it struck me as a great irony today during our state of emergency with bushfires that over 600 schools were closed out of safety concerns. And in fact, last Friday, two schools burnt down. And if you add up the total number of students who missed a day of school today, it was greater than the 80,000 who were at the, and that wasn't even just 80,000 students, but it was, it was likely greater than 80,000 students who missed a day of school today as a result of climate disruption. Mm. And so the, all the huffing and puffing and posturing from certain politicians back in September about the, the, the students missing a crucial day of their education, we didn't hear that today. Mm. There's a recognition that there are some things that are even more pressing and urgent. Uh, in fact, it's a sad reality that all, all the leaders of the student movement have said that we don't want to have to miss school. Mm. We're doing this because the adults are not being adults. Mm. But those couple of weeks, uh, back in September, 7.6 million people, there were more than 6,100 events held in 185 countries with the support of 73 trade unions, 820 civil society organizations, 3,000 companies, and 8,500 websites. This was massive. I was there. It was a real moment in our life together. 80,000 people in Sydney, one of the biggest gatherings for a long time, led by young people, filled with young people for the sake of all of us, but particularly for young people and school students. As a high school teacher, did you talk to students who attended the strike or who had heard about it? Or uh, what, what was your experience in that period back in September? Yeah, in the build-up to the strikes, multiple students came up to me and told me that they'd be going. They were moderately worried about receiving some kind of detention, but they said they'd, they'd go anyway. And were, the, were there repercussions for them afterwards? No, okay. no. Um, I encouraged them to make sure that they told their parents and the school mm-hmm. before they attended. That's the responsible, safe thing to do. And yep. also that makes protesting uh, more significant if you actually tell the system that, yes. that you are going to be there. It was interesting having conversations with a few of them on the Monday afterwards because a few of them felt a bit of an anticlimax after the excitement. Mm. And it was, well, that was exciting. And we, we saw some funny signs and we asked for change. And now what's going to happen? And I said to a few of them, well, now we, you keep protesting and you, you keep making noise and you keep agitating for change. And a few of them found that a little bit deflating. I think they had a a false expectation of how quickly they'd see improvement. And I felt for them in that. 
But one thing I, I do want to say to, to everyone listening was I didn't detect any hint of a desire for some kind of millennial coup where we're really looking forward to grabbing our pitchforks and marching down to Canberra and starting some kind of youth parliament for real. But quite the opposite, there, there is a desperate hunger from young people for partnership and, and leadership with, with, with the older generations. You're not going to get a look who the cat dragged in, Johnny come lately kind of reaction for saying, you know what, now is the time that I want to stand in partnership with these young people. And even though I haven't spoken up previously, now I do want to speak up. I would also like to add a a note of appreciation for Greta Thunberg's strategies by appealing to the best science constantly and by uh, not being afraid to show her fear and her anger, but still being able to ask for an appeal of political leaders to refer to the experts. She's really done what she's done in a, in a faultless way. And I just, I ask people to applaud her and not cut her down and to be dismissive. And I know a lot of my students bitterly resent it when they make a good point But an older person says, get back in your box, young person. And as a teacher, I have regular experience of 16-year-olds making good points. Mm. And they like hearing the phrase from an older person, good point, I'll give you that one. And so let's give that to to Greta, I Mm. say. Yeah, I mean, she has the intersection, not just of her age, but also her gender and her neurodivergence. So there are plenty of excuses for those who want a reason to ignore her message, there are more than enough ways of dismissing her. But I think that's a really important appeal you've just made, that we take seriously the concerns of young people and pay close attention to them. I think that's a good point to transition into our third segment, What Do We Do? And in this segment, we typically make three suggestions. One, something you can do right now, today, Uh, something to read or watch or learn from that can expand your understanding of some of the issues that we've touched upon or the the, the broader context of this discussion. And third, something that's a bit more ambitious, something that's a bit of a stretch goal, uh, a longer term thing, something that might take a bit of time or commitment. And today I actually want to start with that third one because it, it really relates to what we were just saying. And my encouragement to all of us, Adam and me and listeners alike, is to think of a young person or a school student in your life. For some of you, that might be really easy and obvious. I mean, for Adam, there are dozens of them. But for others, that may take a little bit of work. Think of a young person in your life and then offer to listen to what they think or feel about climate disruption. What do they think or feel about the future? Ask that naive question. Make yourself vulnerable. Show that you're available to them emotionally and that it's going to be okay if they actually want to express anger and disappointment or anxiety or a sense of despair. And that's why that's a stretch goal. At one level, that's a very easy thing to do, just asking someone a question, but being emotionally present for a real honest answer and showing that with your body, with your life, with the way you use your words can be transformative. This is what we need. The young people are looking for leadership, but they're also looking to be heard. They're saying, take our concerns seriously. We are the ones who are going to be sifting through the ashes of what is left. 
And, and so that's, that's the stretch goal. That's the more ambitious commitment. Oh, yes. I just want to add that there are so many rewards to an intergenerational friendship. Mm. Uh, it does take a little bit more work than an intra-generational friendship because there are literally language barriers mm. and there are assumption barriers. But one thing that I've noticed that it might surprise you about a friendship with someone in a different generation from you is it's harder to lie to someone from a different generation because you don't know what cues you're giving away to them that they're picking up. You, If a young person is lying to you, it's easier to detect than when someone your age is lying to you. But it goes the other way too. So a friendship with a young person is risky. But if you and he or she are willing to put in the work of building that that friendship and that mutual understanding, it can be enormously rewarding. Mm. Next, we'll talk about an immediate action for today, something that's just possible to do this very minute, if you wish. And in light of the current emergency that's ongoing in the state of New South Wales, there are many people who have lost houses, who've been displaced, who are facing difficulties as a result of these fires. And so a simple thing you can do is to donate. Donate to the Rural Fire Service or to one of the organisations that are supporting those affected by the fires. And in the show notes for this episode, I'll put a couple of links to some places where your money can make a difference. I don't often ask for donations, but sometimes it's important that we, we express our solidarity in that way. Now, Adam, you had a second immediate thing that you want to add in here. Yes, it's on the topic of electric cars. If you are a car owner and you might be uh, selling or buying or making some kind of purchase or repurchase on the horizon, then I'd like to encourage you to seriously consider your next car being electric. And I imagine that for most of the viewers, this probably wouldn't involve a Tesla, but it would probably involve one of the electric cars that's medium range, uh, but lower price. What are you saying about my audience, Adam? Uh, Here's the immediate challenge. I've got a number for you. The Nissan Leaf that I'm right now importing from Japan and is going to arrive in the next few days has a real world range of 170 kilometers. Jump on Google Maps and find the range that you'd need for your next year's trips. And if the overall range that you'd need is less than 170 kilometers, then you too could import a Nissan Leaf from Japan I just want you to know your options. Jump on Google Maps, see the kilometers that your trips need. It'll be an interesting experience. And finally, a recommendation of something to feed our our brains and our imagination and our insights into the world. Something to read, I think you have for us, Adam. Yeah, uh, for my part-time theological study at SNBC, I was asked to read Walter Brueggemann's The Prophetic Imagination. And in Brueggemann's book, He explores what prophecy is, and one aspect of prophecy, according to Brueggemann, is speaking against the royal consciousness or the systems of injustice. And one aspect of doing that is by having a good sense of history. So he suggests that what Pharaoh needed to do to enslave the Egyptians in their system of thinking in the time of Moses was to not 
to, to keep the people ignorant of the history or the trajectory of Egypt, but to just keep their focus in the present and in the status quo. But with a sense of history, you get a sense that, and trajectory, you get a sense that the things, the way things are now, haven't always been the way things were, and they don't need to be that way. Mm. Another world is possible. Another world is possible, uh, and we need to very much be in that mindset of looking back and looking forward and then asking how can the present be different because in a in a context of rapid change tomorrow is not going to be the same as today whether we like it or not so while we still have the ability to bring about changes then that imaginative thinking of how could our current systems be different is, is a great starting point mm-hmm. So Walter Brueggemann, one of the leading Old Testament scholars, who is uh, writing about the prophets in in the Hebrew Scriptures uh, and their relationship to the power structures of the day, to the to the king, to the royal court, and speaking of that very expansion of the imagination that we were talking about earlier, of moving beyond the immediate, beyond the the pressures of today and the, the demands of the rat race, in order to to see the long distant future, but also the distant past and discover that another world is possible. There's nothing inevitable about the status quo. Mm. And that illusion is used by all oppressive systems to say there is no alternative. You're stuck with it. This is just the way things are. Mm. Don't imagine any other possibilities, please. Mm, mm, mm. That brings us to the end of our episode, the bit where the music comes back in. You start to fumble for the controls of your phone or device, where I tell you to share, comment, subscribe, and do the things that make this little community grow. Thank you, Adam. It's great to have had you on the show once more. That's a pleasure, Byron. And thanks, listener, for sticking with this little podcast experiment, one in which we're continuing to dig into realities that stink sometimes frankly repulsive. Composting teaches us that what seems least pleasant can be the best place to see fresh ground being made. So let's get our hands dirty and perhaps we'll see new shoots of growth amidst the muck. Our producer is Simon Bunstead. Music is by Francis Breve. I'm Byron Smith and this is The Good Dirt.